Fascinating people, fascinating places. Precisely 200 years ago, Prince Pedro declared independence for the Portuguese colony of Brazil, the first country in the world to officially acknowledge the vast nation's independence was a tiny African kingdom that developed relations with the South American country over the prior 70 years. Dahomey, a kingdom that once existed in what today we call Benin, made its mark in the history books of South America. But seven decades later, Dahomey disappeared from the maps, having been swallowed up as part of the French Empire during the so-called scramble for Africa. While chasing new territory and resources, the European powers claimed they were motivated by a desire to bring Christianity to the supposedly undeveloped continent. Western visitors often described Dahomey in unflattering terms as a pagan nation where human sacrifice was practiced and where slavery, which had recently been outlawed in Europe, was central to the economy. It was also a land where an all-powerful monarch was kept in power with the support of 6,000 female Agoji warriors that the Europeans dubbed as Amazons. The reality was much more nuanced. While horrific acts most certainly occurred in Dahomey, Western chroniclers were inclined to focus on the kingdom in isolation and failed to draw parallels with the horrors happening elsewhere in the world. In this episode, I explore the story of Dahomey. Before examining the particulars of the society, I wanted to get an idea of what an outsider would have seen upon arriving at the kingdom's capital, Abome, during the height of the Dahomey Empire. For answers, I turned to Dr. Lynn Larson of the University of Arkansas. She has visited and extensively researched Dahomey and is currently writing a book on the architecture of the royal palace. First of all, as you arrived to the city, there was a giant city wall around Abomey, and as well as a giant moat, a big ditch on the exterior of that wall, which in the rainy season, I think probably filled up with rain, but during the dry season had acacia, which is full of thorns. So there was this sort of defensive outward manifestation of power as you arrived in the city. Also, as you arrived, there were certain gates and there was a, an entrance for lay people and an entrance for the king. Um, and even Europeans who often would travel by hammock, like they'd have a hammock with a big pole and they would be carried, were forced to get out and walk through the gate. Only the king could pass through on his hammock. So architecture and power go hand in hand from the onset as you enter the capital of Abomey. And then as you arrive at the palace, the palace is by the end of the 19th century was just huge. It covered 108 acres, so 44 hectares. And it had, again, a large exterior continuous wall in some periods. And again, I don't know how profusely, but Europeans love to note that heads of enemies would be on the outside of the wall, again, as a symbol of power and a way to instill fear in their enemies. These were kings that led annual wars and they wanted their neighbors to watch out. And <laughs> so this was a, a tactic in that way. Now, approaching the palace, there are lots of different entrances because each of the kings that built their own palace section had his own hunwa, is what it's called, or entrance hall. There was one hunwa that was shared by several kings, but I believe each of those kings enhanced that palace space on some level until it came to King Glele, who 
added Bahansin's palace. Bahansin was the last pre-colonial king. So his father built his palace and called it Dohome, which means the 10th wall or the final wall. And just said, this needs to be the end of the palace because it's so huge and hard to maintain because it's made of mud. Also on the entrances, entrance buildings, they would have bas-relief sculptures. That started, we believe, with King Agonglo um, in the 1700s. And, and so the kings, each king had a symbol and those symbols were clearly proclaimed. So it became a way for people to recognize what parts of the palace belonged to what king. When you talk about the mud structures, it makes me think of the Grand Mosque in Jena in Mali, which is to the north of Benin, where they had to regularly add new mud to keep the structure intact. And for a time under the Hamdalahi Empire, the Islamic clerics who thought it was too grand deliberately let it fall into disrepair by just not adding new mud. Was there a similar process in Benin in terms of maintaining the palace and the city? Yeah, I mean, Jenna is a really fun case because they still, to this day, have a big you know, city celebration where the 12 quarters of the city will replaster the entire mosque of Jenna. On that level, it does not happen in Dahomey. Um, it's kind of a piecemeal we restore building here and there, depending on the needs. I will say that the tombs are in constant maintenance because those are the tombs in the Jeho, which are the, called the soul houses or house of pearls, um, which is a sort of resting place for the spirit of the king. Those sacred buildings are constantly maintained. Those are always in upkeep um, because they're always in use and because they're so important spiritually. But other buildings will deteriorate and then get rebuilt. And the entire palace is on the UNESCO World Heritage List. And so it, it was initially on the Sites and Danger List as well. So there are lots of foreign funders that have come and helped in terms of funding and upkeep of the palace. Um, but they also come with their own sort of notions of what preservation means, which is can vary a little bit from what local understanding of what preservation is with the mud structure did it lend itself to have a very elaborate interior to the palace i mean i'm thinking in terms of you know like roman palaces with their mosaics and things like that was it possible to decorate the palaces in dahomey in that kind of fashion or was it a bit more spartan just because of the materials they had to use they had those bas reliefs, so the relief sculptures built into the wall, brightly painted, really beautiful. But those were pretty much reserved to the entrance halls, the hunwa, and the reception hall, the ajalala, and uh, maybe the tombs or adoho. So for each palace section, for each king, you would have those three that would be decorated. The king also, during the pre-colonial period, pretty much had a monopoly on the art form known as applique. And so beautifully applique textiles could also be hung in the palace and, uh, you know, applique umbrellas. So there was a lot of color, but I would say for the palace, the courtyard spaces were just as meaningful as the actual elevated spaces as the buildings themselves. So mostly what you had were big wide open courtyards that were used for various purposes, red earthen walls, thatched roofs until the post-colonial period when metal starts to be introduced. Uh, the kings would have 
what they called their crown prince's palaces or their private palaces, which were built out into the quarters of the city because men are not allowed in the interior third courtyard of the palace. Even princes, once they hit age 11, were ousted. And so they would build crown prince's palaces throughout the city, or I mean, they were just probably houses to live in. Um, And then once they were designated the king, that became also an important site. Eventually, those tended to be occupied by descendants of those particular kings. So the palace is really kind of the heart of the city, kind of dictates the city planning in general. But there's a substantial market that was in play, I know, in the pre-colonial period, as well as a market for the women who lived in the palace. Um, I think there were maybe three markets in the city, which to me says it was a hop in place. When the French took over Dahomey, did they have a higher regard for these palaces in the city of Abomey, or did they just let it go into neglect and just move on and try to modernize the country? So interestingly, it was actually King Bahansin that destroyed the palace when the French came. <laughs> so he set fire to it because he didn't want it to fall into the hands of the French. It was just too sacred and too important and, you know, had nice flammable roofs. And so that's uh, initially what happened. The French, once they came in, they recognized the palace and the kingdom as being so important to the identity of the people of Abomey that they, or at least the initial governor of the colony of Dahomey, Victor Bellot, um, decided to build his administrative office right in the palace. He built an administrative building and a workshop and a kitchen right in kind of the middle of King Glele and King Gezo's palaces, uh, back kind of by their tombs. That meant that they were involved with restoring the palace that Bahansin had just burned down. They also appointed a king um, because Bahansin went into hiding, then eventually was exiled. They said, listen, these people really think they need a king. Let's pick one that can be on our side. And so they found Agoliagbo I and designated him king. But Agoliagbo I had no intention of following the French. And that became apparent pretty early on. And he was exiled too. The royal family was kind of in panic because they said, you know, listen, we have these ceremonies we need to be doing. We have these obligations to our ancestors. What do we do? Meanwhile, the French had appointed what they called the chef de canton. So they had areas, maybe a couple of villages each, and they appointed descendants of the king, of King Lele. Six of the eight were descendants of King Lele. They appointed them to be over these groups. Eventually, they kind of took over the ceremonial life of, or continued the ceremonies in this new way. Things continued, but certainly the sort of centralized power was gone. Certainly the sort of Funding that came from the king, Goliago's budget was a lot smaller than Bahansin's because, you know, he doesn't have the sort of political power or ability to collect wealth in the same way that the kings did. I assume given the historical and religious significance of the royal palace in Abome, that with some, you know, French bureaucrat turning into his office space, it must have seemed almost blasphemous and been mortifying for the Dahomey people. I'm sure it was. It didn't last super long. They, by, let's say by 1906, I think it was, they moved the, the capital down to Porto Novo. So Abomey did not remain 
the, the political capital of the colony of Dahomey. I think initially Victor Bello um, saw Abomey as the center of greatest resistance and that this would be a good way to offset and capitalize on the palace and its power as well as assert himself into that space but i'm i'm not sure it was terribly successful those buildings are still there and they're actually used in uh, the historic museum of abomey which is a portion of the palace that's now a museum that one can visit so from your research it seems that contrary to the reports of europeans at the time and even thereafter this wasn't some kind of undeveloped mysterious sort of patch of the world that needed to be modernized and helped this was actually a pretty sophisticated society. So I would say absolutely sophisticated society with uh, sophisticated religious practices and power structures um, and and economy at play. I think what the French kind of uh, manipulate in their images in the press and in their World Fair exhibitions where they focus in on the agogier and they focus in on human sacrifices is a way to justify their civilizing mission, right? This is further justification for them to usurp power and to deny a nation of its sovereignty and agency. However, there is this underlying irony in that the kings of Dahomey wanted to instill fear in their neighbors. And so they used certain tactics to do that. And those are the very things that the French capitalized on. They did put heads up on their palaces. Um, They did have human sacrifices. They they were involved in the slave trade. Uh, And they did have, you know, war reenactments. So when foreign visitors would come, they would show off their fierce female warriors by having them do performances. And so when the French start to have these World Fair exhibitions and or in the, you know, they had a, a garden outside of Paris where they had a more permanent exhibition where they would have Agoji warriors doing these reenactments. In some ways, there's this eerie parallel to what they were doing in their own country, but now under this sort of perverted guise as a, a justification of colonization. Certainly, I think Dahomey has some reckoning when it comes to human rights, as many nations past do, um, but that does not mean they weren't a sophisticated society with complex systems in play. Coming up, we discuss the role of women and the famous warriors in Dahomey, as well as slavery and its dark legacy. The greatest sniper of all time. The murder that rocked early Hollywood and its subsequent cover-up. Nazi terrorists in late 1940s Germany, the frantic search for Shambhala in the wake of the Russian Revolution, the American mercenary who saved the Chinese Empire, the submarine used in the American Revolution, the global pandemic that gave us the Third Reich, the Greek-French woman who worshipped Hitler as a Hindu avatar, the father of modern Palestinian nationalism his role in the Holocaust, and his relationship with Nazis who had affinities for Islam. What do all of these stories have in common? They are strange. They are unbelievable. They are perhaps even impossible. But they are all true. And you can learn about them on the History Impossible podcast. Subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use or visit historyimpossible.com today. 
Slavery was commonplace around the world when the Dahomey Empire was formed around the year 1600. The Fon people who founded the empire were the descendants of individuals, some of whom themselves had been enslaved by other regional powers, such as the Songhai and the Oyo. But by the 17th century, Africans were being enslaved in huge numbers and transported overseas to the Americas by European powers such as Portugal, France and Britain. The rulers of Dahomey established an economy that was heavily dependent on this dastardly trade. War parties, often composed of female warriors, launched raids into neighbouring territories to capture unfortunate souls. In fact, a man later known as Kid Joe Lewis was imprisoned on the last known slave ship to arrive in America. He was the victim of such a raid himself. In an interview in 1935, he recalled how many in his village had been beheaded by female warriors before he and the other survivors were chained up and shipped to Alabama. Human beings like Kujo were exchanged for liquor, textiles and later rifles. In the 19th century, having abolished slavery, the British Royal Navy was tasked with preventing transatlantic shipments of slaves from Africa to the Americas. Under pressure, the Dahomey Empire attempted to develop palm oil as an exportable commodity. Kingezu argued, though, that the nation was too dependent on the revenues from slavery to abruptly abolish the trade. Instead, he agreed to gradually reduce the trade if and when palm oil became a business that was lucrative. But not every slave was destined for the Americas. Many individuals were kept in Dahomey and forced to work as unpaid labourers. Some, often children, were allowed or even forced to join Dahomey's professional military. Others experienced a much worse fate, human sacrifice. And it was this gruesome practice that some anti-abolitionists cited as they produced a false dichotomy between slavery and human sacrifice. In their view, people being sent across the Atlantic to plantations were better off than their contemporaries who died in ritual sacrifices. Hundreds were sacrificed annually, but there was no mention made of the huge numbers who died at sea, or in slavery, or indeed of the huge number of people who were never enslaved and lived in Africa, beyond which there's the obvious option of allowing any willing African migrant to move to America and live as a free person. Nevertheless, human sacrifice is obviously one of the most distasteful and troubling aspects of the Dahomey legacy, but not all of those killed were unwilling participants. It's been reported that some of the human sacrifices were wives of the king, who willingly offered themselves upon his death so they could accompany him to the afterlife. But that brings up the question of who exactly were his wives? So, Lynn, I've read that the Agoji female warriors, and, you know, at one point in time there were 6,000 of them, they've been described as wives of the king. Does that mean, in a literal sense, how we would think of it in, you know, modern terms, you know, they actually had some kind of relationship with him resembling a marriage, albeit, you know, there were 6,000 of them? Or was that more of a ceremonial title indicating somehow they were beholden to the king. 
No, so I think you're right. There's a sort of gradation there, right? Um, so they were considered, the title is Ahosi. Um, I mean, they were Agoji, which is, or Agojie, which is the female warriors, but they were also Ahosi, which means we translate as wife, but I think maybe follower of the king or devoted to the king is implied, but that means an, a, an exclusive devotion. So they were not allowed to marry or have sexual relations with others. So in that sense, the king kept a sort of sexual control over all of his ahosi, regardless of how close intimately in terms of um, knowledge of the king they were. I think you're right. Our translation of wife is different in that regard. Um, And yet they weren't just his army. They had access to that privileged interior space that most people did not. Um, So often next to a king's tomb, you have the tomb of the 41 wives. 41, not necessarily meaning actually 41, but it's just like a lot Um, in the same way that 40 years in the wilderness at the time of Moses just means a lot or 40 days of fasting for Jesus probably just meant a lot of days. We've seen the female warriors inspire things like Marvel's, you know, Black Panther movie, the female warriors and that, for example. And obviously that's the image that most Westerners have of women's role in society in Dahomey. But more broadly speaking, because I have read that there was an element of practicality there with possibly just a shortage of men due to war and so forth. So they had to get women trained up as these warriors. What, though, was their role more broadly going back to the beginning before we even had the female warriors in Benin? Was it similar to the kind of patriarchal society that we are used to in Judeo-Christian countries, or is it more balanced in terms of the gender roles? Women do play essential roles in Dahomeyan history. There have been moments when the princess Hangbei, um, who some call a queen, um, took the throne, um, I believe as a regent, uh, but some people say that no, she was absolutely a queen. And that's her rise to power came because uh, she was the twin with the king and twins hold a special place in society as being as sharing all things in common. So when Akaba, the second dynastic ruler died, um, she took up his place. She also, according to the oral tradition, did a lot to ensure that women's voices were heard and that women had a place in the market. She made sure that occupations that usually belong to men were available to women. So the role of queen mother, pojito, or we often call rainmate, which is an office, um, and usually went to the actual mother of the of the king, but not always, really was a powerful position. And uh, some would say it was online with the king. I would be a little wary of that. I think it shows a division in that Women held power, but they held it in a private sphere where men held power in a very public and outward way. And so when it comes to the royal palace of Dahomey, where I'm writing my book on, the space is divided that way as well. So women have this privileged interior access to the king and they have power within the kingdom and within the palace. But aren't really allowed out um, or don't really have access to the exterior where men do. But the king would have a male court and a female court. And those were balanced just as he had a male army and a female army. And that was from Tegbesu on. The religion in Dahomey was a form of Vodun, which later gave rise to voodoo, 
in Haiti and other areas. The Fon people believed in dual male and female spirits, Lisa and Mawu, though in some accounts these individuals are combined into one single entity with both masculine and feminine elements. While the Judeo-Christian god purportedly took seven days to complete creation, the Fon gods got the same task done in just four. When Dahomey was at its peak, Christianity had already established a strong foothold to the south in the Congo, while in the north, Islam had long been established in Mali, Senegal, and Mauritania. So, Lynn, were there evangelists, you know, from Islam and Christianity, who in, you know, the case of the former, had been entrenched in North Africa for hundreds and hundreds of years, were they just slow to penetrate this part of the continent, or were the people in Dahomey so strongly entrenched in their religious beliefs that they were just not interested in converting to, you know, Islam or Christianity? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, and certainly Vodun is today very much practiced in Abomey, which is the pre-colonial capital of Dahomey. Um, so Vodun, I think it comes down to really identity and sense of self. And I would also say that Vodun is a very inclusive religion. So as the kings expanded the borders of the kingdom, often one of the first things they would do is they would take the gods and the priests of those gods into the center of the kingdom to help teach about these new deities to add to the pantheon. So Vodun as an inclusive religion also was willing on some level to accept Christianity. Um, I think there are lots of practitioners today in Abomey who are Vodun practitioners who also go to mass because you can add to your religion. So you can be Vodun and Christian. I mean, I don't know if you can be Christian and Vodun because <laughs> the first commandment about not putting other gods before. Um, but depending on your starting point, um, certainly Christianity can be built into Vodun. But in terms of when I say identity, I'm thinking about how Vodun is also deals with, in terms of the kingdom, also deals with sort of ancestry. Um, and the kings, when each king died, he was sort of promoted to this deified posthumous state and ceremonies every five days are still performed for the kings at their tombs. Um, and then their big annual ceremonies. And then also Vodun ceremonies within the private families are performed. They have big annual ceremonies where people, even if you've moved down to Cotonou or you've moved up to Niger, you're going to return once a year to do these ceremonies for the ancestors. And I think that is just a reminder of who you are and where you came from. If you're interested in the topics discussed in this episode, including slavery in West Africa, please check out my recent episode on Mauritania the last nation on earth to criminalize slavery just a few years ago, and where the trade is still widespread. It features an interview with Emma Kane of Anti-Slavery International. You can also listen to an exploration of two other great West African empires, the Songhai and the Caliphate of Hamdalahi, both featuring Professor Maro Nabili of the University of Illinois. Stick around during the short break, the details of the exciting topics coming in the next few weeks. Hi, I'm Andrew, host of the podcast Our Last Mill. Every episode I talk with a guest about grief, loss, and food. My guests are given a chance to honor their relationships with someone special and discuss the meals that they shared together. 
New episodes come out every other Wednesday on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and I hope you'll join me. In the meantime, I encourage you to share a meal with someone you love. There are a few people alive today who've been to more fascinating places than Gary Arndt. He spent years travelling every corner of the globe while establishing himself as a widely respected travel writer. But what happens when COVID shuts travel down? I talked to Gary about his adventures and his new podcast. The following episode, I examine the Goebel brothers. Everyone is familiar with Herman, the convicted Nazi war criminal, but few have heard of his brother, a man who wasn't just opposed to Nazism, but at the risk of death, actively engaged in sabotage and rebellious acts as he sought to save Jews and other victims of the regime from the clutches of the SS. The Goering brothers will be live on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.